Broadcasting live from Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Top Docs Radio. Brought to you by Women's Telehealth, whose mission is to bring scarce, high-risk maternal fetal medicine services to patients and referring obstetricians in their own community, urban or rural. Visit womenstelehealth.com for more information. Now, here are your hosts, Tanya Mack and C.W. Hall. What is up, everyone? It is CW. Thank you for checking out the Top Docs Radio Show. This week, I continued my series with Tanya Mack of Women's Telehealth. She sits in with us every first and third Tuesday of the month, talking all things healthcare. On this week's episode, Tanya caught up with Rachel Klein. She's a genetic counseling program manager for GenPath Diagnostics. They're a company that provides screening and diagnostic genetic testing along with genetic counseling to go with whatever results are found. And they'll be talking about the difference between a screening test and one that is diagnostic in nature. They'll be talking about the purpose of genetic testing and what advantages, if any, there are provided to the parent and the fetus. What you should be thinking about when you select a genetic counselor if you're going to opt for this kind of test, either leading into getting pregnant or once you are. And a host of other considerations around this helpful screening and diagnostic tool. Check it out. Hi, CW. How are you doing today? It is great to have you in the studio today. All right. Thank you. Well, I'm excited to be back. And today our session is going to be featuring prenatal genetic counseling. Women are routinely offered a variety of genetic tests during the first three months of pregnancy in the United States. You know, every woman wants to believe their baby's normal and uncomplicated. However, the CDC reports that one in 33 babies born in the U.S. will have a birth defect. Genetic tests screen uh, and diagnose the likelihood that a developing baby has a genetic condition that can cause problems with growth, development, and body functions. Joining us today on this segment of Top Docs, we have an expert, Rachel Klein, who's a certified genetic counselor from one of the nation's leading prenatal genetic testing labs. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me today. Yes. Let me tell you a little bit about Rachel. She is a board-certified genetic counselor and she is the manager of a genetic counseling program at Bioreference Laboratories. She's co-director of the Inherited Cancer Program at Gene Diagnosis also. She got her bachelor's in biology from Loyola University in Chicago and her master's in human genetics from Sarah Lawrence College in 2004. She also has a very large team of genetic counselors across the U.S. in prenatal and inherited cancer programs. Um, so, Rachel, welcome. You represent Bioreference Labs, and I think you also work with their specialty women's health division, GenPath. Is that correct? Absolutely. So, GenPath is a business unit of uh, Bioreference and specializes in the testing that's specific for women's health issues. Very good. So, why don't we start and dive right in, and why don't you have uh, uh, explain to us the types of genetic testing that a patient may consider prior to or during a pregnancy? So there are a lot of different types of tests or genetic tests that a woman might consider prior to or during a pregnancy. Um, some women may be concerned about their family history. Perhaps there is a specific family history of a genetic disorder in their family, um, or there's perhaps any some type of birth defect within the family. And those, so they're concerned about what the chances are that they might have a child with that condition or with that type of that type of birth defect. So some people may be interested in very targeted testing, depending that's very specific based on the family history. Yep. Um, other types of genetic testing that's available is really what we refer to as 
population-based testing. So this is the most common example of something like carrier screening. So um, we all know that we have a certain number of genes that just don't work properly in our bodies. Uh, it typically does not cause a problem for us because, fortunately, we do have two copies of most genes, uh, pretty much all of the genes, um, one that we inherit from our mother and one that we inherit from our father. So when we're doing carrier screening, we're trying to determine if a person carries a change in the gene that might increase the risk if the partner is also a carrier for that same condition for a child to be born with that genetic condition. So population-based screening or population-based carrier screening is um, specifically to perform carrier screening, it traditionally or historically was done based on a person's ethnic background. Um, we said that if an individual is of a certain ethnic background, um, we may do carrier screening for specific disorders, but more and more frequently we're doing population-based screening um, really on it, women of, of all ethnic backgrounds to determine if they're carriers for certain genetic disorders. So that's one another type of testing. So again, we have testing that might be very targeted based on family history. We could do population-based screening that's uh, based on an ethnicity or based on uh, any ethnicity or based on any population. Um, and then there also might be other types of testing that may be specifically related to a person's age. So we do know that as a woman gets older, the chance of certain chromosome problems like Down syndrome increases as a woman ages. And so we might do different types of testing during a pregnancy to determine what the chances a baby might be born with a chromosome problem. Now, traditionally, we always did that testing based on a woman's age, but really this testing is, is really now available for women of all age. Um, and there's many, many different types of tests that are available for that. You know, Rachel, so I'm sort of a brief overview of that. Yeah, let me, I'm curious as you're speaking, um, I'm interested in how many couples do kind of preconceptual testing for the family history side versus they wait and they're exposed to it when they become pregnant. So we always prefer to do everything preconception. So any of the population carrier-based screening, any concerns that there might be about a family history, it's always preferable to do it preconception. This way patients are armed with the information. They have the most options available then, and they can make the best decisions for themselves prior to a pregnancy. Um, I do think that practically uh, these days, most of the screening that gets done actually happens during a pregnancy. Um, and so if a woman is pregnant and thinking about any type, uh, any type of genetic testing, we always encourage that that testing happen as early in pregnancy as possible. But, you know, it's, it's hard for me to answer your question, um, you know, completely accurately. I can yeah. tell you anecdotally from my experience is really that most of the testing occurs during the pregnancy. And certainly. Although the, we would love to see the patients prior to pregnancy. Right. Certainly the majority, they're exposed to it once they're pregnant, it sounds like, from your experience. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And types of carrier-based screening, would that be, for example, like Tay-Sachs disease, sickle cell, that, that kind of um, exactly. family exactly. history? Right. So, Exactly. So the carrier screening that people are probably most familiar with are cystic fibrosis, Tay-Sachs disease, sickle cell anemia. Um, these are these are conditions that we know that are common in certain ethnic backgrounds, but they can also be seen in many different types of ethnic backgrounds. Okay. And like I mentioned, historically, we did this carrier screening based on a woman's ethnicity. But because it's becoming increasingly difficult to determine a single ethnicity for an individual, um, we have now what we refer to as pan-ethnic carrier screening, which is basically a panel of tests that allows for us to screen for many, many disorders at once. That's really interesting. Yeah, thank you, Ancestry.com and DNA testing, right, for us to learn about our gene pools. So we all are getting a blended gene pool is what you're saying. It's getting harder and harder to just um, guess or Absolutely. know what your, your own family history is. 
Exactly. Right. So I know one of the misconceptions working in women's health myself is that um, I think a lot of patients sometimes have a misconception that I'm only going to have genetic testing if I would terminate a pregnancy. When in reality, I think that there's lots of reasons or benefits that we might see from genetic testing prior to delivery. Can you speak about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. And I'm, I'm really glad you asked me that question because that, that is a very large misconception. And while some women would choose the option of termination of pregnancy if they found, find out that a baby has a problem during a pregnancy, many women would not consider that option yet still want to have the information. So for those where termination of pregnancy is not an option, um, having the information during a pregnancy if you're pregnant really is very beneficial. And this is, many patients have told me in the past, that this, although, you know, certainly increases anxiety during the testing process, having the information in advance really helps them prepare for the birth of a child who are going to have, who's going to have certain challenges. Um, in certain instances, that might mean delivering at a hospital that is equipped to handle a baby with whatever challenges we're speaking of, um, even for the parents to just be emotionally prepared that a child is going to be born with certain problems. They can also get certain specialists involved early on to try to just maximize the the you know how that the outcome for that child to do the, the best as possible. Right. I know. Also, um, too, the the management might be a little different during the pregnancy to make sure that we have a safe delivery. Is that right? Sure. There are times management during pregnancy, how the baby is delivered, that might also be impacted depending on exactly what's going on. Um, I will also mention that um, there, especially if testing is done preconception. Or if testing is done during a pregnancy, yet there is recurrence risk for it to happen again during a future pregnancy, there are many conditions for which we can actually um, prevent it prior to a baby being born, prior to getting pregnant. So there is a procedure called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, which involves the patients to undergo in vitro fertilization. So we would take um, dad's sperm, mom's eggs, fertilize. If we know what we're looking for, so let's say both mom and dad are carriers for cystic fibrosis and we know the exact change that they have, we can then um, go ahead and test that embryo, determine if the embryo is affected or not, and then implant only healthy embryos. So this is a, you know, a phenomenal technology that many patients do take advantage of, and that's really why we encourage testing, any type of testing that we're able to, to do, to be done prior to pregnancy. So we can really um, provide patients with the most information and the most options um, so that they can make the decisions that are best for them. Boy, that really is advanced technology. So that's, thank you for that information. I'd like to dive a little deeper into the difference between screening prenatal genetic testing and diagnostic genetic, genetic testing. Yeah, so this is, a, this is an incredibly um, important point and great question. So like I mentioned, there are a multitude of, multitude of different types of genetic tests that can be performed during a pregnancy. And understanding the difference between screening and diagnostic tests is critical. So a screening test in general means that when, whatever test it is that we're doing, and let's, just, let's use an example because this, um, it might be the best way to illustrate this. Um, let's say we're trying to determine if a baby might have Down syndrome. So there are a number of screening tests that are available right now. These could include blood tests, ultrasounds, um, could include a new technology that we have called non-invasive prenatal testing. But the common denominator between all of these tests is that they are screening tests. And what that means is that they will not tell us definitively if a baby has Down syndrome or another chromosome problem. What it tells us is that the chances are either increased or decreased. 
The detection rates for the, for the testing will vary depending on what test we're talking about. So it can tell us, you know, how if we get a positive result, how likely is it that a baby might have that problem? But under, under no circumstances should anybody think that a screening test is going to be definitive. As opposed to a diagnostic test, a diagnostic test is one where we're going to be able to tell you or we should be able to tell you um, whether or not a baby is affected or not affected with that condition. So there, there are two main types of diagnostic tests that are performed during pregnancy. One is called a CVS or chorionic villus sampling, and the other is called an amniocentesis. Both of these are invasive procedures in which we sample part of the pregnancy, either fluid or some of the placenta, and we test for the conditions that we're concerned about. So if we're concerned about chromosome problems, we can take a look at the chromosomes to see if a baby might have Down syndrome. If we're concerned about a specific genetic syndrome like cystic fibrosis, again, so long as we know, we know what changes to look for, um, we can test for that. Um, using an amniocentesis and a CDS. And these are considered diagnostic tests, so we can give you an answer, yes or no, does the baby have that condition? Now, another big difference between screening and diagnostic tests is that is the risk involved. So screening tests, these are typically blood tests or ultrasounds. There's no harm to the baby in doing these tests. Now, they, might, they might cause emotional anxiety for a patient, but in terms of the baby, nothing's going to happen to the baby by doing this blood test. Whereas CDS and amniocentesis, these are invasive procedures, there is a small risk um, associated with these procedures, and, that, and that's specifically risk for miscarriage. Now, you know, it's felt at this point, really, the recommendation at this point is to offer, to make all tests available, screening and diagnostic tests available to women of all age to look for chromosome problems, because the risk of miscarriage in general is felt to be fairly low. But your, your specific doctor who's performing these pr procedures, talking to you about that, or your genetic counselor who's speaking with you about these tests can provide you specific numbers as to what they quote that risk of miscarriage to be. So, Rachel, in the future, I'm just thinking about, you know, we used to do a lot of amniocentesis in women's health, and then we started doing CVS. At one point, we kind of slowed it down. But as time has gone on, we've been able to see more and more through the blood test. Do you think that we're moving towards some kind of diagnosis that's not invasive through the blood eventually? We are, are we getting that sophisticated with some of the markers in the fu near future? So, yeah, I mean, the, the trend that you're really seeing right now, where we're, we're not seeing as many CDS and amniocentesis right. procedures being performed, is really reflective that the, the, the screening tests that we're doing for things like that getting better and better. Have, have, exactly. They've mm -hmm. improved significantly. I don't think anybody's going to tell you that we're, we're, we're at the point where we're going to consider these screening tests diagnostic. Um, these, there are some real limitations to these tests that really have to be understood before doing them, which is, you know, why they're not considered to be a diagnostic test. So we're not, we're not there yet with diagnosis. I think every, everybody will agree, the professional colleges and organizations all agree that it's important to emphasize that these blood tests and ultrasounds, they are screening tests. And it, should a patient have a positive result, um, we always recommend confirmation with a diagnostic test like a CVS or amniocentesis. Following the initial screening. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And can you just address briefly the issue of false positives? So since it's screening, it's not 100% accurate. So to some degree, since, again, I think one of the things I see happening in clinical practice is that a lot of women get genetic screening tests, but they don't necessarily have the follow-up genetic counseling to 
interpret the test. And we'll talk about your particular role as a genetic counselor. But um, just again, since I think there are some false positives, being clear that it's not definitive. Absolutely. So every screening test, every screening test for chromosome problems like Down syndrome um, has a false positive rate. And depending on the test that's being performed, the false positive rate might be, might be fairly low, but it might, sometimes it might be higher, again, depending on the test. That's just the nature of screening. And basically what that means is that you can screen positive, meaning you have an increased risk or an increased chance for a baby to have a problem like Down syndrome. But that doesn't mean that the baby has Down syndrome the baby because could we know be that fine. there are false positives. Right. Absolutely. Right. And, very, and frequently, again, depending on the test, frequently the baby is fine. Um, but that's where the genetic counseling comes into play and where patients at this point are often you know, frequently refer to a genetic counselor to talk a little bit about the test that was performed, why there can be false positives, and what the chances that there might be a false positive, and to talk to the patients a little bit about what we call the, what we call the positive predictive value, which means that if I have a positive result, what's the likelihood that it is actually positive, that a baby actually might have that particular condition. And at that point, that's when a genetic counselor would start talking about the options of performing a diagnostic test to determine whether or not a baby is affected or not. Okay. So since we're talking about the role of the genetic counselor in the process, genetic counseling, why don't you talk a little bit about your training and whether you get involved with patients and maybe both ways, pre-test or post-test? Sure, absolutely. So genetic counselors typically have a master's degree um, in human genetics or genetic counseling or some related fields um, specifically geared for genetic counseling. Um, following uh, graduation from their master's degree program, genetic counselors can get certified by the American Board of Genetic Counselors. That's that genetic counselors. So that's basically what it means to be uh, meeting with or when you're speaking with a board certified genetic counselor. And then many states across the country, not all of them, probably about 18 to 20 of them, also have licensure for genetic counselors. So if 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 you're seeing if you're seeing a genetic counselor in a state that requires license licensure, um, there's just that added layer there um, where where basically the the the, um, the genetic counselor is licensed with the state and everything is kept on file with the state. So is the trend more toward more states being requiring licensure for genetic counselors? Ab- absolutely. Okay. So there are. Um, I believe right now, and, and all of this information is actually publicly available on the website nsgc.org, which is the National Society of Genetic Counselors. Um, and I believe there's about uh, about 18 states that are currently issuing licenses. There are several more that where the bills for licensure have been passed, but it's at, it's in the rulemaking state, so they're not actually it's not actually enacted yet. And there are many many more states. Um, that are seeking licensure right now. And NSGC is a very active voice in this and in advocating for this service. And it's, it's really to protect the public, for the public to be able to um, find a, find a uh, genetic counselor who is, is deemed qualified to be able to provide that service. Okay, so let's go back and pretend I am a you know, pregnant woman here. Actually, let's go back and talk a little bit about where would I get genetic testing? How would it be presented to me? And what's gonna, what can I expect kind of on my uh, visit? Sure, absolutely. So, you know, a lot of the genetic testing actually starts with your obstetrician. So many of the obstetricians will actually perform, you know, talk to you a little bit about the genetic testing that's available and discuss whether or not that's something you'd be interested in. 
Sometimes they may refer you to a genetic counselor prior to that testing. Um, if it's a little bit more extensive or if perhaps there's a family history that there may be concern about. Um, but often the testing may start at the obstetrician office. Um, other times it could start at the genetic counseling office. So, you know, if you're meeting with a genetic counselor, perhaps because you're concerned about family history or, or just want to learn more about the testing, um, the genetic counselor is going to sit first, you know, sit down with you, talk a little bit about what your concerns are and figure out, you know, what is it that you're seeking and looking for, um, what, what specific information you're looking for. Typically, um, a genetic counselor will then go through a detailed family medical history, draw a three-generation family tree to see if there's any other concerns that they want to discuss with you. And then based on the reason you were referred, as well as anything that might have come out um, during that initial uh, discussion stage, um, the genetic counselors will then start talking to you a little bit about all of the different options that are available during pregnancy when it comes to genetic testing and what might be, what might what might be appropriate for you. And it's it's really um, you know at least you know in, initially there's there's a lot of information that's discussed with the patients. Um, essentially, we are trying to empower the patients with the information to enable them to be able to make the best decision that makes makes sense for themselves and for their family. So I understand that if I'm pregnant, probably I'm going to be introduced to genetic counseling by my OB physician or provider. But what if I'm in that preconceptual? What if like I, you know, my my uh, sister had a child with cystic fibrosis or something and I want that preconceptual? Would I go to my OB or would I access you directly or how does that happen preconceptually? It really could be done either way. Um, many people have a relationship with their obstetrician or gynecologist, and that might be the first stop where they call and say, hey, look, you know, I'm concerned about this history. And at that point, their obstetrician may refer them to a genetic counselor in their area. Um, other patients, you know, are, are finding information on their own. A great resource I mentioned already is nsgc.org, mm-hmm. where you can actually go online and locate a genetic counselor near you. So there's many different avenues in which uh, a patient might end up by a genetic counselor. Okay. And I kind of understand that you, uh, your specialty is pretty rare. There, there aren't many genetic counselors. Is that correct? That, that is correct. Um, you know, relative to the amount of patients that are pregnant, um, there, there, are, there are definitely not a lot of genetic counselors. I mean, there's, there's, there are many genetic counselors, but there are certain areas of the country where we don't. There isn't tremendous access to genetic counseling, unfortunately. I know we're talking between our two companies about some pilot programs with te- using telemedicine as a platform or a tool to kind of link the more rural areas for patients that don't have access directly. Absolutely, and that's something that is becoming increasingly popular um, among genetic counselors. Basically, you know, genetic counselors trying to figure out a way how can we reach more patients, how can we help them, and get them the information and you know that they're looking for to be able, you know, to be able to give them the information to make the best decision. Right. So, when I have the genetic counseling visit, how long of a visit is it typically? So, genetic counseling visits typically um, can last usually, I'd say, between thirty and sixty minutes. A lot of it depends on the reason that a person is being referred, um, but t- 30 to 60 minutes is probably pretty standard. Okay. And do you get written information back? Absolutely. So typ- typically what happens, uh, you know, again, I can't speak for every genetic counselor, but mm-hmm. I, I think we're pretty uniform in, in, in our practices and that once a patient is referred um, or seen by a genetic counselor, 
um, if they were referred by, by an obstetrician or, or another physician, um, typically a genetic counselor would then go ahead and write a consultation summary back to the physician to just summarize the visit and talk about plan recommendations in terms of what the patient's decisions have been. Um, a patient who was self-referred, who was coming just on their own, um, likely a genetic counselor would communicate that information back to them in, in writing as well. Okay, so it'll either come through their OB or if they refer themselves, they'll get something back directly from the company. Yeah, and every, every genetic counseling practice is different, but there's there's usually written um, communication back to either the physician or the patient. We talked a little bit earlier about one of the misconceptions was that if I have genetic counseling, the results aren't good, I may have to terminate the pregnancy. But are there more misconceptions that we should be aware of? I think that in, in the area of prenatal testing, um, there's, I think that's one of the largest misconceptions. Um, you know, other areas where I think there are misconceptions that, you know, if you just, you know, if you Google about uh, screening, for, um, screening for Down syndrome or chromosome problems, I think there's a large misunderstanding, uh, which is I think what we're trying to clear up or I'm trying to clear up here is with regard to what a screening test can tell us. And so, like I said, screening tests are that. They're screening. They're telling us who, who may be at an increased risk. And so oftentimes, um, and it, it could be the information was not conveyed correctly to the patient, or it's a very, it's a very emotional period and time for, to be told that there might be a chance that a baby has a genetic condition, and perhaps it's not, it's not understood as well as it should be. Um, and, and this is an area where I think genetic counselors really can, can help and to, to clarify and to explain that no screening tests are not diagnostic. They're not going to be perfect. So, you know, I often hear, I, I've often had patients come into my office and said, I was told my baby has Down syndrome, you know, and then looking at the results, we kind of have to clarify, say, no, 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 this test doesn't say that. This test says there's a one in 180 chance that mm-hmm. the baby might have Down, Down syndrome which means that most likely the baby does not have Down syndrome. And so I think that there, there, as, as, as much as we can do to clarify and, and, and ha- you know, explain to patients the difference between the types of testing, um, I think we will only benefit the public there. Right. I think it's kind of like uh, the big C in cancer. When you hear there's a problem, you kind of quit listening. And that's probably all you hear, even though you've yeah. been told it takes a while to sink in. Which brings up another Absolutely. point. I wondered, since it is kind of a, you know, difficult time for patients. I'm just trying to think if I'm a pregnant patient and now I had a test and I got a result that indicates there may be a likelihood um, and then I have my genetic counseling visit. Is there ever, I'm thinking about how much I would retain or if I had decisions to make, is there ever a follow-up? Is there such a thing as a genetic follow-up visit? Yeah, yeah, there there is. Um, so you're absolutely right. It is, it's an extremely, it's an emotional time to be told there might even be the remotest chance that there could be a problem. And, and many people's reactions are that, you know, just, you know, don't hear anything else. And so um, there are genetic counselors are available to follow up with patients whenever needed. Um, most, almost every genetic counselor I know will always reach out to patients and, and say, look, if there's any questions, call anytime there are, there are concerns. Um, depending on what subsequent testing is performed after that initial testing, there are frequent frequently in-person follow-up genetic counseling sessions. Yeah, that's good So, I mean, it, it is pretty routine for us to be able to follow through, be able to, you know, follow, follow up with any additional testing. And in addition, we, whenever, you know, we understand that patients might not be hearing everything when we're speaking with them, given, given the, you know, what's going on during mm-hmm. the pregnancy. And so we will always try to provide 
um, written information that they could take home and read after afterwards, provide resources for them so they can, you know, if they're going to start Googling, you have to be careful on Google because not everything you read on the internet is, <laughs> is true. true, of course. <laughs> right. And so we want to we try to direct them to the websites that we know are reliable and we know they can, um, you know, glean some great information from. Right. One question I had is I'm thinking about, my, in my experience, if, patient, if patients that are pregnant are concerned about the baby, um, a lot of times they're willing to Um, foot the bill or pay for some additional testing or additional level of counseling. But in general, do insurance, health insurance companies pay for genetic testing? So that's going to be very plan specific. Um, I will say that, you know, my experience for my patients is that um, the insurance companies are typically covering this testing, the the routine testing that is recommended by the American College of of Medical Genetics and the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. So it is often covered. There are certain situations where, you know, perhaps again, you know, we gave the example of family history. So mm-hmm. if there's family history of some rare genetic disorder, um, you know, it might not be, that testing might not be as readily available. And so then it, you know, we're working with the laboratory to, to figure out coverage. But very often, even in those scenarios, it is covered because it is deemed medically necessary. Okay, well, that's again, good to know. Again, it's going to be very plan-specific. Yeah, yeah. So in your area, it's good advice to have patients check with their plan if they're thinking of doing genetic Absolutely. testing. Yeah, because I know a lot of times they get varied answers, too, so keep digging. Um, I want to talk just a little bit about in your field. You're such an, an exciting and ever-changing field. It seems like every day in the news we see the Genome Project and how many markers we're able to test for now compared to two or five years ago. What are you excited about as far as future trends or some research going on in your field? So technology is changing so rapidly. And even what we're, you know, what we're able to test for um, today compared to what we were able to do, let's say, five years is unbelievable. Um, I think that the field of non-invasive prenatal testing, which we spoke about briefly, Mm -hmm. which is the ability to, which is, again, emphasizing a screening test, but the ability to um, evaluate some of the fetal DNA that is circulating in the mom's blood. Um, Right now, we're only looking at um, certain chromosome problems and a certain some certain other types of um, deletion syndromes, with, you know, where missing there's some missing material. But I think that as the technology improves and as more validation studies are published, um, that's going to explode. I think it's going to give allow us and give us the ability to screen for even more and more conditions without without any risk involved. Um, again, I, I do think that this is this is going to be a screening test for a very, very long time. It's not going to be diagnostic, but it, it'll give us more information. Mm-hmm. Are you talking, I think Ra- what we're, yeah, Rachel, about like alpha fetal protein or nuchal translucency testing? No, so this is, the non-invasive prenatal testing is, is a little bit different than that. Okay. So the, the test that you mentioned, alpha fetal protein, is a blood test that's performed to see what, you know, if there's an increased chance for a baby to be born with a neural tube defect. Mm-hmm. And the nuchal translucency testing you mentioned is an ultrasound, ultrasound. that's done mm-hmm. to look at the back, back of the baby's neck to screen for um, chromosome problems like Down syndrome, as well as um, it could also pick up or give us concern about some other potential types of birth defects. The testing I'm referring to is non-invasive prenatal testing, and this is this is it, it's blood testing. Okay. And essentially, what we're doing, what we know, and we've we've learned over time, is that there's actually fragments uh, when a woman is pregnant. There's fragments of DNA that is felt to be fetal in origin. 
So it's actually probably coming from the placenta. But it's circulating um, it's in the mom's blood. Circulating. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. And so if there's fetal DNA in mom's blood, then you that, it. you know, right away, that, that, that gives us the potential ability to start looking at that. And so, you know, we have, we are able to look at that for certain conditions right now. Um, primarily things like Down syndrome. Um, but the, the, the technology is changing. We're improving our methods with the testing. Um, I think it's just a matter of time before that really expands to be able to look, look at other things. I will also tell you that, you know, in terms of other testing that's on the horizon and other technologies, um, we're, we're already doing this in a pediatric setting, um, looking at what we, doing what we call whole exome sequencing, where we're basically sequencing the DNA, the coding regions of a, human, of a person's DNA. And it, this is prim, primarily right now used in, like I said, in the setting where perhaps a child is born um, and there's some concerns and we want to try to get a diagnosis for that. There is, I do, I do think that at, at some point the, this testing, and it actually is even available right now on a limited basis, um, where that testing might be used in the prenatal setting. Perhaps, you know, there's a situation where there's an ultrasound performed and there's multiple concerns on ultrasound and we're trying to get a diagnosis to figure out what's going on there. That's a technology that is, that, that is now available and um, will only continue to become more available and to get even better as we, as we move on. Yeah, so we're headed to personalized medicine, not only of the mom, but back to the fetus. Yeah, 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 that's that's pretty pretty cool stuff. Well, I know that um, we've kind of come to the end of just an overview of prenatal genetic testing. Is there anything that you think we've lo- we've left off, just in terms of what a patient can expect, the who, what, when, where, why of prenatal genetic testing? Sure. No, I think I think we've covered quite a bit today, um, talking about you know what one can expect in the in the prenatal setting for genetic testing. Um, I, I I really would encourage patients who are considering any type of testing, or perhaps you're listening and you yourself have a test that came back positive or even a test that came back negative and you're looking for some more information on it. Um, genetic counselors are available to talk to you about that. Um, certainly speak with your doctor about getting, you know, having being referred to speak with a genetic counselor who might be able to better, better to explain this testing to you. Very good. So we're at the end of our show, Rachel, and we sure appreciate your time. But I always like to leave the listeners because they remember not only the medical data that we share and the resources we share, but some particular patient stories without naming any names because of the HIPAA situation are just there's some um, particular patient stories you could share where prenatal genetic testing really made a big difference? Sure, absolutely. I mean, there are so many, and of course, no patient names. Um, but, you know, I've had many patients, and this is something I always try to do for my patients when I, when I, when I follow up with them. I, I've had many patients who we've, you know, I've seen during a pregnancy, we, we made a diagnosis um, of a certain condition. And, you know, I, I always ask the questions of the patients after the baby's born is this, and asking them, you know, is this information that you, you know, now that we've, we're past this, the baby's born, everything is somewhat settled at this point, is this information that you really would, would you know, looking back at it, is it information you would have wanted to have during the pregnancy, knowing what you know now? And I, so many patients have um, expressed to me the, that, that they're grateful that they had the information because they were able to prepare for themselves. I've also had situations where, you know, we, we've diagnosed patients during pregnancy that had we not diagnosed them during pregnancy or had, had we not even had the suspicion that it could be a concern um, and taken the steps after delivery to get the appropriate management teams on board, the outcome for that child really could have been extremely drastically different. And because we knew in advance, or at least we had the suspicion in advance, 
you know, we were able to help that family. Now, genetic testing is a very personal option. And so not everybody, not everybody is going to want it. And that's fine. I think the most important thing is to, you know, learn more about it. And then you can make the most informed decisions and the best informed decisions for you and your family. Yeah, but certainly no surprises and preparation are two key advantages and key points of genetic testing. Absolutely. We appreciate that. Well, we're at the end of the show. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about Bioreference Labs and GenPath and then share how the listeners can contact you or get more resources? Sure. So Bioreference Laboratories is a full-service laboratory. We are based in New Jersey, um, and our our business unit, GenPath Women's Health, as I mentioned a little earlier in the show, really focuses just on that, on women's health. So this is, um, you know, we have genetic testing available for um, primarily the OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialists, and it runs a gamut from routine clinical testing that you might consider prior to or during a pregnancy, include pap smears, things like that, but then also all of the genetic testing that we touched upon here today. So population-based screening, um, screening related to chromosome problems like Down syndrome. We do the diagnostic testing like CBS and testing on amniocentesis and CBS. Um, and, and we have a full staff of genetic counselors available. So when physicians or anybody call, anybody calls us looking for information about the testing, we're available to discuss it with them and discuss the ins and outs and benefits and limitations of that testing. Um, we are, you can look us up uh, on the website. We, um, we are at www.genpathdiagnostics.com. Um, you can, at any time, if there are any questions, you can also call our customer service line. It's 800-229-5227. And we're really here and available to answer any questions that you might have. Okay. Thank you so much for being a guest today. CW, thanks so much for running the board and participating with us today. And uh, thanks to our sponsor, Women's Telehealth. Rachel, thank you so much. It's been delightful to learn about prenatal genetic testing. Thank you so much for having me today. And if you're coming back, checking out the podcast, if you've not done so already on the show page, you'll see the Apple logo. That'll take you to the Top Docs Radio Show podcast where it lives on the iTunes store. Make sure you subscribe to us so that you can have the new episode each week downloaded straight to your device, ready for the ride to work, walking the dog, whatever the case may be. And we hope that when you get that, you turn around and share it with your social media contacts. You might just put some information in the hands of somebody that you care about that makes a big difference in their professional life and or the personal life in this case uh, on something really important like uh, learning about the risks for potential diseases if somebody is contemplating getting pregnant. So we certainly hope you share that and want to say thanks in advance for that. Tanya, it was great having you in the studio. I appreciate it. Appreciate you jumping on with us, Rachel. Rachel, thanks. Have a great day, everybody. 